This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. This is a weird story that takes us to uh, Mesopotamia. What's what's that we always say here in the here in English? It's good to be king. Suzuki to you, Ben. Suzuki, yes, that's the word of the day, Noel. That's something <laughs> uh, we checked in beforehand to make sure that we were both pronouncing correctly, uh, because of course. Uh, Suzuki is one of our super producer Casey Pegram's favorite words. And our guest producer, Andrew Howard, would never forgive us if we uh, were too far off in our pronunciation. They're both really into ancient Mesopotamia. Is ha- who knew? Who knew? Uh, there's a couple good words here. There's another one, Sharpuki. We'll get yes. to that one later. Uh, but first of all, we need to talk a little bit about celestial bodies the mechanics of eclipses, the idea that humans have been looking to the stars without fully understanding how planets align and create the various lunar cycles that we see, uh, instead attributing them to like vengeful deities or some sort of like cosmic super monsters. Yeah, exactly. We're fortunate in these are modern times uh, to be able to accurately predict these things and enjoy them for the beautiful natural phenomena they are. But back in the day, 
uh, we didn't have both of those things at once. Our species was able to predict some movements of the heavens, uh, but put our own meanings upon uh, why these things were occurring. We know that natural phenomena has led to a lot of myth-making in human history, but the relationship between these natural events and the myths we tell about them isn't always super clear. As Atlas Obscura puts it, we don't know to what extent a lot of ancient cultures made up stories to explain eclipses or you know, to what degree they saw their existing myths reflected in the movements of things like the sun and the moon and other, other heavenly bodies. But today's story is a true story about a kind of cosmic bait and switch that occurred in ancient Mesopotamia. This is the story of the substitute royals, the substitute queen and the substitute king of Mesopotamia. It's, it, it's described uh, by the Met Museum as, quote, a tragedy driven by fear, awe of the gods, and the uniquely important status of the, you know, the actual real king. So in ancient Mesopotamia, which today would be what we think of as Iraq, uh, there were priests that would use divination to read uh, the tea leaves in the sky, the giant celestial tea leaves that are the stars and the planets. And they were able to kind of use the positions of these bodies to come up with kind of theories about, you know, how things were going to happen, whether it was the weather or, you know, how the crops would, you know, flourish or not flourish, etc. But over time, you know, what started off as ritual and this idea of some sort of mystical divination did kind of form almost a system you know, with these observations over thousands of years. Uh, and then as kind of scholarly knowledge sort of caught up with uh, the priestly kind of divinations, it became a pretty decent tool for predicting things, right? So over thousands of years, these priests would kind of develop these elaborate rituals to help kind of cancel out some of the uh, bad omens that they would see, you know, spelled out in the heavens. And one of the most dire, uh, absolutely disastrous omens that they could see was a solar eclipse. You know, thankfully, those don't happen too, too often. But when they do, uh, it indicated some sort of grave danger uh, that might befall the ruler of the, uh, the, the land, right? Mm -hmm. In ancient Mesopotamian astronomers were able to accurately predict the solar eclipses themselves, Though, you know, their interpretation of what they meant was probably still a little bit based in, you know, this mysticism, right? Um, so once they knew that an eclipse was coming, they had to come up with a plan to make sure that the rulers were guarded from this uh, disastrous omen. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, I, I was thinking of a good comparison for this. So uh, dog owners or uh, people who live with dogs, you you may identify with this. Like, let's say your pooch knows that the mail carrier shows up at 3 p.m. every day, but they don't know why the mail carrier shows up. They don't really have the concept of mail, so they kind of invent in their own doggy heads what the mail carrier means. And unfortunately, for some people in the USPS, 
some dogs have decided that they are a threat. And at 3 p.m., they must be driven away by barking to prevent the collapse of the doggy world as the doggy knows it. There's something kind of similar here. They could predict eclipses, but as you said, uh, they were drawing some strange assumptions from these. So they thought that if an eclipse was projected to take place over Assyria, then the Assyrian king would be in mortal danger. And for the king to be in danger would put everything at risk. Civilization might collapse. So their solution was not to not have a king, but to create a substitute king, something called a Shar Purki in Akkadian. Uh, this was the language of the Assyrian court and its official paperwork. So imagine that gig. You know what I mean? Uh, we'll, maybe at the end we can talk about whether or not we ourselves, uh, listeners and Noel and Casey and I, would want to be the substitute king. But to do that, uh, let's maybe let's look at what modern science says. Let's do some spoilers about modern science and eclipses. This is where syzygy comes in. Syzygy is when three celestial bodies find themselves in a straight line within their elliptic orbits. Kind of imagine billiard balls lining up. The word comes from the Greek syzygos, which means paired or yoked. And if you're like us sitting here on planet Earth, you see two kinds of eclipses, right? Solar eclipses and lunar eclipses. Noel, can we talk a little bit about these eclipses? We absolutely can. I'm very disappointed that the word isn't pronounced Suzuki, like I said at the beginning of the show, but I'm still going to use that as a greeting. Suzuki to you, Ben. Um, but no, syzygy is correct. It's a very sciencey, fancy-sounding word that means when those celestial bodies are aligned. So in a solar eclipse, you have the moon that passes between the sun and the earth, which causes the shadow of the moon to block out the sun, which, uh, you know, when you say things like block out the sun, even today, that sounds pretty scary. Luckily, this is only temporary. Uh, you're definitely not supposed to stare straight into it. Super bad for your eyeballs. But that's how that happens. In a lunar eclipse, you got the moon that crosses through the shadow of the earth. Uh, and a solar eclipse can, in fact, completely block out the sun. But like I said, it's only temporary. Um, and in certain parts of the Earth's surface, you can still, you know, see parts of it. And, and it can be not too many miles in between these different views. So what might be seen as a total eclipse in one city, just a few hundred miles away, it might just look like a partial eclipse. So a lunar eclipse can be seen throughout the entire hemisphere of the Earth, uh, the half of the planet that happens to be on the nighttime side. Yeah, which can explain why prediction of solar eclipses becomes so important in this ancient civilization, because you can pinpoint where it will be a full solar eclipse. That's what they mean when they say a solar eclipse over Assyria. If you go back through human civilization, you can see that numerous cultures throughout the ages had very strong opinions about solar and lunar eclipses. Often, eclipses were seen as ill omens, symbols of obliteration, the subversion of the natural order of the world. And according to the Exploratarium in San Francisco, the word eclipse comes from a Greek word meaning abandonment. So, in very literal terms, ancient peoples would sometimes see an eclipse as the sun abandoning the earth, 
You know what I mean? Like walking out. I'm I'm off the clock now. You were left to oh, your yeah. own in the darkness. Yeah, and even in those days, they knew how important the sun was to sustenance, to growing things, to mm-hmm. just absolutely sustaining life on Earth. Yeah, and spoiler alert, we're going to have another episode in a few weeks. That's a little, it's about how people in an age a little closer to ours would also freak out if the sun appeared to behave unusually. And you know what? I'll be honest with you, fellow ridiculous historians. If I walked outside today and all of a sudden the sun appeared to have uh, (laughs) lit out for the territories, I would also freak out. You know what I mean? Even if I knew it was coming, it's a weird thing to watch. Yeah, and this was something that we've seen written about as far back as Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, when Odysseus comes back, you know, from his journey to see his wife, Penelope, he is greeted with this vision that has been foretold by a seer of an eclipse. The sun has been obliterated from the sky and an unlucky darkness invades the world. And that seems to, according to an article from The Guardian about how solar eclipses and vernal equinoxes have cast shadows, quote unquote, on literature, because these are powerful symbols, right? I mean, they really are. They're they're very good devices in literature, but also they were taken quite seriously. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it seems to foretell the slaying of uh, the suitors who have been, remember the whole deal with Odysseus? Like he basically had these interlopers that were trying to woo his wife while he was away. Sliding in the comes, DMs. He was sliding in the DMs. And then he comes back and he's like, uh-oh. And uh, yeah, the, the ass is about to hit the F for, for sure with Odysseus. Not a happy guy. And it's fascinating because I would go a step further and say that in some cases, the Odyssey being one, an eclipse symbolizes a kind of consumption. And this is paralleled in other cultures that explained eclipses as a moment when demons or evil spirits or heavenly animals would eat, would consume the sun or the moon. Often that animal was uh, something really cool. It was a dragon. The Chinese word for eclipse, shi or shi, uh, not sure about the tones there, means to eat, literally. And mm-hmm. in Vietnam, people traditionally believed that a solar eclipse was caused by a giant frog consuming the sun. And in Norse cultures, wolves were the sun-eating culprits. So everybody had these solutions to combat this consumption of the great life giver, that the dying star next to us, the sun. Uh, a lot of people would, you know, bang stuff, pots and pans. They would make noises or play on drums to, to distract it, to get the frog or the wolf or the dragon or what have you to stop trying to eat the moon or the sun and to go away. And because eclipses are not permanent events, You can see how people thought this would work. You know what I mean? You can Mm -hmm. kind of confuse correlation and causation and say that I didn't happen to be drumming during an eclipse. It's because I brought out the drums that the sun came back. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. 
This is important stuff. Your team can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your teen enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so we've got a little bit of this history of various cultures interacting with the sun and the the, the clear fear and anxiety behind losing it. Uh, so let's go back to the Bronze Age and ancient Mesopotamia, where you know these um, what, what would you call them, Ben? Mystics, I guess, or you know, priests were essentially kind of straddling the barrier between science and religion. And actually, you know, they were certainly looking to these uh, events as, you know, kind of ominous omens, but also over time, really getting pretty good at predicting them and looking at various conditions that would, you know, be kind of clues that that these things were on the way or tracking the phases of the moon and all of that good stuff. Um, so, you know, Mesopotamia, known often as the cradle of civilization, which should be modern-day Iraq, uh, had several very, very important and highly sophisticated civilizations that were settled there. You had the Akkadians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Sumerians, uh, all of these incredibly advanced empires rose and fell between 3100 BC and 539 
BC. And astronomy was important to all of them. Of course, it was important to things like navigating, but it was also important to things like predicting the the weather and the cycles of planting and and reaping and all of that. Uh, And these priests and these astronomers would kind of work together to look to the skies uh, and get advice, essentially, you know, uh, omens that they would apply to things like politics, government, economics, all of these things, all of these astral signs uh, were interpreted and acted upon. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they, they, they would know based on what was happening in the heavens, you know, when good or bad times were coming, essentially. Yeah. And before, before any of uh, the more skeptical folks in the crowd today decide to poo poo on this system of uh, using astronomical signs as a predictive tool. Let's not forget that people have used things like this, what I would argue is basically astrology, in the modern days. Ronald Reagan had an astrologer, the former U.S. president. The government of Myanmar, the military junta that ruled it back in the day, relocated the capital on the advice of an astrologer. So these these things continue past ancient civilizations. In these societies, The Babylonians in particular are incredibly, incredibly impressive. They were able to, more than 2,000 years ago, calculate 38 possible eclipses or syzygies within a period of about 223 months or 18 years. This 223-month cycle was called a sorrow cycle by modern astronomers, and the sequence of eclipses generated during that cycle or by that cycle uh, constitute what's called a Saros series. Scientists know now that the number of lunar and solar eclipses in one of these series is not always the same, but still, there's no denying it. This is incredibly impressive. I mean, these Babylonian scholars were top-notch. They were smart cookies if they could understand this phenomenon. This understanding of this cycle, this 223-month period, eventually allowed them to predict eclipses with, uh, as we said earlier, some astonishing precision. And it can't be separated from the astrological tradition at the time. So their science was getting better, and they were bringing their astrological beliefs along with them, like two sides of the same coin. So the curator at the Department of Ancient Near Eastern Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, her studies uh, led her to believe that solar eclipses were considered the most significant of these astronomical events uh, and were seen as being omens of great evil and misfortune, which we already mentioned a little bit. But specifically, the idea that a solar eclipse indicated that the gods were very, very angry, specifically at the king, and that some awful, awful end was in store for him. They looked at it very seriously, almost like an assassination threat, you know, from some sort of outside, you know, organization, a warring faction, for example, or, uh, you know, a terrorist group. But instead, this is literally the gods are are angry uh, and they are they mean to do harm to the ruler. Um, So this type of threat was considered a threat on the entire structure of power in Mesopotamian society and needed something very, very, very serious to be done about it. 
yeah, you could not hold off on this. Babylonian scholars had isolated specific eclipses that would foretell the death of the king. The conditions for an omen to be considered this were, were pretty exacting, and we know about these from a famous astronomical work that is, the title is usually Enuma Anu Enil, which translate it's just the first words of the document. It means when the gods Anu and Enil do something, something. If Jupiter is visible during the eclipse, when it occurs, if they know Jupiter is also going to be in the mix, no worries, no stress, the king is safe. Lunar eclipses seem to have been especially concerning when it came to the well-being and survival of the king. So, to keep the eclipse from killing the monarch, they made this mechanism up. It's the substitute king ritual, or Sarpuhi. This ritual is mentioned multiple times in various letters from Assyria dating all the way back to the first millennium BCE. And there are earlier rituals that are referenced in text in Hittite. Uh, and that's the language for which we have the earliest written records dating back to second millennium in what would be modern Turkey today. So this is an established thing. This really happens. The fact that you found it in this other second millennium writing leads experts to uh, assume that this ritual already existed in Mesopotamia during the first half of that second millennium. So what happens in this ritual, Noel? Totally. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it's almost like the psychic equivalent of a food tester, you know, someone that would taste the food before a king and in the event that it was poison would, you know, die <laughs> instead of the king, the kind of mystical canary in the coal mine, if you will. Uh, but in this situation, a lower class citizen would be chosen to replace the king during this period of threat from the gods. He would be dressed up like the king, sat down in the throne of the king, and all of this would happen in a ritualistic fashion while these priests would recite or, you know, do some sort of ritualized chant uh, of the negative omen that was triggered by this eclipse. Mm -hmm. And it didn't even matter if the substitute king looked like the real king. It was just like a, you know, like a body double or like a stand-in. Yeah, know, a in, cosmic in a movie body sets. double. A cosmic body double. But it did have to be a man. And uh, this person was dressed in the king's, you know, finest robes and all of that and actually declared to be king and would participate in various other rituals that would, you know, make it seem legit to the gods. It's almost like this, uh, this idea of uh, fooling the gods into thinking that this was the king. Uh, you know, and, and the fact that they didn't have to go too far to make them look the same indicates that they thought the gods were, you know, only concerned with, like, the ritual and the kind of pomp and circumstance of it all. Uh, he was, in fact, given a young woman uh, as a queen, also a stand-in, and then the uh, actual king would basically like hole up in some sort of uh, Mesopotamian equivalent of like a bunker until the season uh, had passed or the, the eclipse had passed. And the substitute king and queen were essentially, you know, cannon fodder for the gods. They were put out there, offered up as sacrifices for this, whatever this evil fate might be. Mm -hmm. um, and they were, you know, taking it on. 
uh, you know, and I'm sure in some sense would consider it an honor. But Ben, I mean, like we know that there's no cosmic evil uh, associated with these eclipses. I mean, what would happen? Would ever, anything bad ever happen to them? Yeah, well, what I, I want to do is put this in, in modern terms to make sure everybody gets how official this is. Let's think of a modern U.S. president. This is considered a credible assassination threat, basically, right? But from the gods instead of a rival state. So what if the U.S. policy was to say, when we think the president might be assassinated, we're just going to pick some guy some guy who needs a job. He doesn't have to look like Joe Biden or whatever. He, we're just going to pick him. We're going to have him say the oath of office. We're going to keep him there, you know, in the week leading up to, in the week after this eclipse happens. And then we'll bring, you know, the president out of the bunker and we'll decommission this other guy. That's what's literally happening. The idea of it being an honor, I, I think, is accurate. I think people wanted to do this because it was still an opportunity of sorts. Uh, we know for sure that not all of the substitute kings and queens, you know, died during the eclipse. So how did the priest class rationalize that? They probably just said, well, close call. You know what I mean? Close call. Yeah, they, exactly. But unfortunately for them, they were going to die either way. <laughs> right, right, right. The eclipse was not the cause of, well, the eclipse was sort of the cause of their death, but it wasn't the gods that killed them. For a brief time, the, just the way the moon and the sun were visible in the same place during an eclipse, the substitute king and the true king existed. But once that dangerous time had passed, yes, the substitute kings were killed by people. Okay, not by the gods. They were killed because yeah. they, they had served their purpose. Uh, the true king came out of his hidey hole, and the ritual was considered complete. Everything proceeded as planned until uh, astronomers predicted, or priests predicted, the next dangerous eclipse. This happened all the time. This was, you know, this was real human sacrifice. And, and there's a political reason, too. It's not, it's like part of the ritual to kill the substitute king and queen. But the political reason is, you know, the king might be willing to let somebody else take this heavenly bullet for him, but he definitely doesn't want them around afterwards. The thing about kings is you really only want one if you're the current king, right? Yeah, I mean, like even, if, even though it was all kind of just like for show, in theory, this person could make a claim that they were the rightful king, and that's just too messy, isn't it? So we'll make a different kind of mess, you know, a slaughtery kind of mess. Yeah, you get into red wedding territory otherwise. Big time, big time. But then, like you said, Ben, the ritual is complete. Rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. We have two cases of uh, the substitute ritual in action. One might be, just heads up, a little bit more legendary than factual, there's a surprising turn of events where one of these substitutes managed to outlive the king he was supposed to replace. And shout out to Vintage News for this great story, as well as theconversation.com. There's, uh, there's a first millennium composition that is known today as the Chronicle of Early Kings. It's about a king of the city-state of Isin which is, uh, in modern day, it's, it's about 125 miles southeast of Baghdad. And the king, Era Imiti, was replaced 
by a gardener who was named Enil Bani. And this was part of a substitute king ritual. But get this, luckily for Enil Bani, the gardener, the real king died after eating hot soup. His official cause of death is sipping broth that was too hot. And so the the population of this city-state said, well, it's your lucky day, Enil Bani. And the gardener remained on the throne. He became the actual king. He ruled for 24 years. That guy had to be very pro-soup. But I ask you, whenever you read stuff like this, don't you think it's poison? Like, is it wrong to, to assume it's poison? Yeah, it has to be. I don't, I don't know that I've ever sipped a broth that was so hot that I was afraid for my life. Uh, but, you know, maybe this person had a baby mouth, you know, a very, very sensitive, heat-sensitive, you know, palate. Yeah, I mean, I'm not one to brag or toot my own horn, but I've eaten my fair share of hot soup. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I'm not, maybe I'm not dead because I'm not king of this city-state. It's true. You're not. We can't argue with that. Then we have another case of a young man named Domqui who was killed along with his queen um, during the tenure of the ruler Esharhaddon. I hope I'm getting that somewhat right, uh, who ruled from 680 to 669 in order to protect the Assyrian crown prince who has an amazing name, Shuma Shum-Ukin who was at the time the ruler of Babylon, uh, or Babylonian territories, rather, um, which were part of the Assyrian Empire. Damqui was a member uh, of the uh, Babylonian elite. Uh, He was the son of a chief administrator of the temples. So I guess this is like the building manager of these holy temples in Babylon. Um, And he had some powerful friends. So it just goes to show that even people in higher classes or that were more well-connected could be forced into this role of substitute king. And Damqui uh, may have been selected in order to make an example and strike fear into the hearts of the Babylonian people who were not playing nice with the Assyrian rulers. So this was a bit more of a flex or like a, you know, a political ploy to kind mm-hmm. of get people to bend the knee, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I've been thinking about it. You did agree a little too readily that I was definitely not the king of the city-state of Izzet. So I'm going to elect myself king of hot soup as a Love prize. You should be, yeah. <laughs> so can I be the king of cartoons? Please, please, by all okay. means. Okay, uh, cool. All hail. And of course, the king of podcasts would be our own Casey Pagram. Obviously. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. 
It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your teen enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moon roof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. It's interesting. We see this mix of politics, religion, and astronomy. It's it's a very interesting syzygy of its own, right? The way these three concepts line up. So we have to ask ourselves, why did the ritual die out? Let's go back to Atlas Obscura. We have to look at the mythology. So there's this pantheon of these moon thieves and these giant, you know, Lovecraftian cosmic horror monsters that want to eat the moon. The plague god era brings doom to ancient Mesopotamia. The Sibetu march in his wake. There are seven warrior demons that spread sickness and death, and occasionally they all get together to party in the sky and blot out the moon. And historians like John Z. Wee, which is an awesome name, uh, speculates that these mythological creatures like the Sibitu may have functioned as a way of absolving a moon-associated king of guilt. So why would you continue staging this elaborate sacrifice ritual when you can just kind of tweak the religious view to cast yourself as the victim of these intermittent demons? It's a good question, Ben. <laughs> yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, but it's interesting. I mean, eventually, remember how we were saying how the Babylonians weren't really playing nice with their Assyrian rulers? Mm-hmm. Well, eventually, 
Uh, yeah, and the Assyrians, uh, you know, again, did this symbolic, you know, ritualistic murder of one of the Babylonians' higher class citizens, uh, sons. But it turns out that there were lots of other folks that had problems with the way the Assyrians went about uh, their ruling. And so the Babylonians leaded up with them and eventually exacted their revenge by joining forces and destroying the empire in 612 B.C., uh, when their combined armies sacked the Assyrian palaces and essentially attempted to blot out a lot of their history by smashing a lot of the sculptures of these royals that were depicted on the palace walls. They uh, erased portraits that were done in relief in some of these uh, buildings as well uh, in Nineveh. Now you can see the results of this in the uh, museum's collection, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, which has an incredible historical art collection. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I love museums. One of the only things I miss about uh, life before the pandemic, I used to go to a mm-hmm. museum. One of my three rules to every place I travel is to visit any museum they have there. Never let a museum go unvisited if you can help it. There's some amazing ones out Agreed. there. Ben, did I tell you that I've got a, a, a trip planned uh, post-COVID? Right. Of. You're going to uh, Chicago, I think. Go, going to Seattle, in fact. Seattle. Seattle that's the uh, and going to see uh, the Minecraft exhibit at the Museum of Pop Culture with my daughter. And then we're going to do some other, you know, seattle tourist things. But I'm really excited to get uh, back out on the road again. It's been too long. I think we both feel that way. Yeah, I've actually, I, I don't want to disclose on air yet, but I've got some weird ones coming up. Uh, <laughs> I've got some weird ones coming up probably in summer, but uh, safe travels there, Noel, and I hope you enjoy the Minecraft exhibit. Uh, I hope also that no one in the audience today has to end up being substitute royalty. No. And although we still have a lot to learn about the world and the space in which the world moves, it's amazing to look back on the progress our species has made and to know that nowadays we can go enjoy an eclipse. Like at our at our office over in Atlanta, there was a solar eclipse and we were all able to take a, a few hours off and go to the roof of this ginormous office building and safely watch it with our special eclipse glasses and everything with no fear that some sort of monster beyond the stars was going to eat our sun. So thank you, science, and thank you, ancient Mesopotamia. And thank you, super producer Casey Pegram and Alex Williams, who composed our theme, Christopher Hasiotis, here in spirit. And thank you, of course, to our guest producer, Andrew Howard. Thank you to our own king of research, Gabe Luzier. And thanks, of course... Uh, to our own mythological sun-eating demon, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. the Quister. Do you think he's more a, a sun-eater or a moon-eater? I don't know. I, think, I don't think he picks and chooses. I think he eats all. He is the eater of worlds, that guy. <laughs> we'll have to have him on the show again soon. Uh, you know, it's not up to us, Ben. It's not, not up to us. It just happens. <laughs> uh, so, folks, we hope you enjoyed today's show. Again, we do have another episode about a particular dark day coming up in the future. Do tune into that. And Noel, we also have uh, some surprise guests on the way in a bit. We sure do. We'll keep that under our hats for now. Uh, But until then, um, may the sun forever be at your back. The wind? I don't know which one it is. the sun shines. 
That's the one. The sun shining. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.